Hello again, and welcome to episode 13 of the Mad Scientist Podcast. This time of year is great in the United States, with businesses closing to allow people to spend time with family and enjoy whatever holiday they're celebrating. I personally celebrate Christmas, a holdover from my Christian upbringing, but also just a great time of year to remember how lucky we've been in the past year and a good time to reflect on ways that we can be better in the following year. 2016 has been pretty tumultuous for the world at large, with the rising threat of nuclear weapons rearing their ugly head in the past couple of weeks, and hard right-wing populism making a strong showing in countries around the world. I hope that we can all take some meaning from one of the very best stories ever written, with some of the best movie adaptations of any book series ever made. I'm not talking about The Lord of the Rings, although those are some of the best movies around. I'm talking about A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens who incidentally is one of my favorite writers, and easily one of the coolest authors of all time, given his penchant for ghost hunting and myth-busting. He is definitely an episode all on his own. The story for those who haven't heard it before is about Ebenezer Scrooge, an old miser who thinks only of his business interests. When asked in particular about giving charitably to the masses who would rather die than go to the homeless shelters of the world, he says, quote, If they would rather die then they had better do it, and decrease the surplus population. Scrooge isn't a good guy, but I know he sounds like some of the uncharitable thoughts we all have sometimes, and some of the uncharitable slogans that have helped propel some to power this past year. So he goes home, and is visited by a number of ghosts, who show him the error of his greedy and terrible ways, in an effort to help him make better use of his resources in this life for the common good. One particularly chilling quote comes from Marley, Scrooge's old business partner, who appears to him literally weighted down by heavy links of metallic chain, held down in the greed and evil that he allowed in his short-sightedness to rule his life, a chain that he himself forged in life. Scrooge, after some convincing, finds that it truly is his old business partner, but Scrooge can't understand why it is that he's chained in this way in the afterlife. He says that he doesn't understand why he should be tortured so in the afterlife with these chains, since he was such a good businessman in life. The section goes as follows, But you were always such a good man of business, Jacob, faltered Scrooge, who now began to apply this to himself. Business, cried the ghost, wringing its hands again. Mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, Benevolence were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of my business. End quote. I don't mean to be preachy here, but at this time of year, I think it's important that we think about the good that we've tried to do in this year. I personally haven't been as charitable as I could have been, both in deed and word, besides being overcome with the usual sins of thinking of what I don't have, and neglecting that which I do. I hope in the new year to be a stronger person, and at least be good enough to not be visited by ghosts who need to haunt me into being a good guy. Anyways, at this time of year for giving thanks, I need to thank you, my listeners. Without you, this show would be nothing more than wind in sails, as the ever-prophetic Devo would say. Seeing your comments and suggestions, all the cool places that people are listening from, And knowing that what I'm putting out is being enjoyed by some is an extremely amazing feeling. Just this morning, I found out that I have listeners outside the U.S. and countries around the world, 
including Canada, France, the UK, Egypt, Bangladesh, Australia, and many others. Wherever you're listening from, I hope you had a good year and are looking forward to the next one. I don't plan on stopping this show anytime soon, and hopefully I can count on your continued support. This holiday time in the U.S. always brings about a lot of family drama, it seems. I guess it makes sense, since this is the time of year when we all get together. Starting from Halloween on October 31st, we have Thanksgiving about a month after that, then the religious or semi-religious festivals of Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Yule and Saturnalia, and about a billion more. Then New Year's. For me personally, you can add on to that my mom's birthday, my sister's birthday, and Katie's birthday. And these months become pretty intense. Anyways, this getting together with family members that may cause friction or weirdness in your life is pretty great for funny family stories and holiday problems. And my family has a whole lot of those. So for this episode and the holiday season, I thought we would do one on all the weird, crazy, and frustrating things that my family actually believes in, once believed in, or continues to try and convince me of after I've been lulled into a false sense of security by meatballs and pasta. Welcome to the Mad Scientist Podcast, episode 13, Crap My Family Actually Believes. First things first, I absolutely adore my family, and so I hope this episode doesn't come off as unloving or unkind. I also hope that my grandma never hears this episode, but you'll learn more about that later on. I grew up in New York City, raised by a family of immigrants. My father was Canadian, and as far as I know, literally joined the circus as a kid and smuggled himself into America. My dad's family is awesome, but don't believe the same sort of weird stuff that growing up in a small town in Italy, before being transplanted in the busiest city in America, seems to have instilled in my mother's side of the family. My mom is from Italy, immigrating here when she was around 8 years old along with her many brothers and her sister. My grandmother, whom the bulk of this episode will be about given her rich and complicated views that can only ossify by living through a world war, a civil war, moving to two new countries in your lifetime, forgetting like three languages and learning two new ones, and then having to fight for your family's well-being upon being dumped in a new country, only to have your husband die prematurely, is originally from what is now Croatia, but was then Yugoslavia. During World War II, she was wined and died by my grandfather and moved to Italy, in the process needing to learn Italian and forgetting the Croatian, German, and Russian it seems she must have known as a child. My grandma is very Wolverine from X-Men-esque, both in her unquenchable rage and in her mysterious background about which she does not like to talk, so it's kind of hard to piece together. But really, who could blame her given what must have been this insanely difficult transition to a new war-torn country, leaving and never getting to return to your home country because it no longer existed. Anyways, she came over to the U.S. with her husband, my grandfather, after having three sons and two daughters, one of whom is my awesome mom, Dora. She learned English, basically teaching it to herself, and ended up getting a pretty sweet job after my grandfather died, helping out the borough president of Brooklyn's wife as a personal secretary of sorts. 
She only had to get this job, though, because my grandfather died prematurely of some sort of lung cancer. Leaving my grandma to take care of her two youngest children, my mother and her younger brother Angelo, while my older uncles Martino and Vincent and my Aunt Mimi had their own families, you know, starting. As you can imagine, this heady mix of Italian, Croatian, and American culture has made my grandma and frankly all of my relatives really interesting, at least in my opinion. They have a strange mix of modern American thinking and old school beliefs, especially my grandma. And one of these holdover ideas is that modern medicine is not really to be trusted, or at least it's to be used at an arm's length. And frankly, I can't argue with the results, at least in one strange way of looking at things. My mom's family seems to be insanely sturdy, with all of my relatives living well past 70 years old, some all the way into their 90s. My grandma in particular has been strong as a bull for like, the past 90 years, only recently starting to slow down. And where does she claim this miraculous longevity and strong vigor has come from? Lemons. I don't know where she got this idea from. I imagine she must have read it in one of those supermarket checkout aisle health magazines or something. But she has been following it for as long as I can remember. My grandma, Nona as I call her, is diabetic, but hasn't taken medicine for diabetes, as far as I know, ever. What she has done, however, is squirt lemon onto sweet things, drink lemon juice after every meal, and eat a strange witch's brew containing onions, yogurt, and lemon juice every morning before she has her coffee. She claims that the sourness of the lemons can negate the sugars in her food. Almost a Fran Drescher as Fran Fine and the Nanny-esque the body doesn't know trick to losing weight. When we get ice cream, she squirts lemon on it before eating it. Add a piece of cake? Half a cup of lemon juice will fix that. Eating pasta for dinner? Not before you make your lemon water drink first. She used to carry around one of those little squirt lemon bottle things in her purse. And did I forget to mention that Nona has a penchant for hoarding? Because lemons are one of her staple items. That thing without which she goes absolutely bonkers. One of my favorite stories as a kid involves my cousin Joseph, who is about a year younger than me, and my Nona. So because she's into collecting foods and stuff, we used to always need to go shopping with her for groceries. And because she is sort of crazy... The things she used to make us buy were always very interesting. On this one trip, we had to buy palander jellies, including like 10 things of mint jelly, which to this day I am still mystified by. I can't imagine Nona was roasting lamb all that often. So what's with the mint jelly? So it's the jelly, and I mean this literally. Every single lemon in the store, including every one of those lemon squeeze bottles that they had. You see, ShopRite, which is a grocery chain in New York City, had a sale going on for lemons and lemon juice. And if Nona is good at anything, it's hunting down a sale. She had Joseph and I each with a cart, one loaded up with lemons and one loaded down with lemon juice, and the other cart Nona had was for bread and the, you know, mint jelly. That's all we bought, but don't let that meager grocery list fool you. For the quantities of said items were truly astounding. The woman at the checkout counter must have thought we were planning to roast and eat every lamb in the Triborough area. 
So we get to the line, and Nona is already pissed off at Joseph because he thought all of this lemon stuff was just hilarious. And of course, I was egging him on a little bit. And so we get to the checkout counter, and the lady starts ringing it up, not realizing, I guess, what we had in terms of total lemon girth. So we start putting the lemons up there, and it slowly dawns on her face that this woman and her grandsons are buying the most lemons she's ever seen in one place in her life. It got so bad that this poor girl at the checkout counter overflowed the computer system. The computers themselves thought we were joking about buying this massive amount of lemons. First off, she could only scan in multiples of like 10 of any item. So to put in the nearly 200 lemons and 100 or so lemon juices we bought, she had to manually enter in these quantities each time. But even worse, at around 50 of a single item, the computer just locked up. It couldn't fathom that this wasn't a mistake. And so I suppose its robotic mind panicked at the fallibility of its human overlords and went into a robotic fetal position. She had to call a manager, who himself didn't know what to do at first, further infuriating Nona, who was already ready to kill Joseph and I. The workaround ended up being to do individual transactions up to the maximum amount, so a total of like four transactions or something, and we'd already spent three hours in this stupid shop right, and it was like 10 o'clock at night or something already, so we're all cranky and annoyed, but the thing that finally broke the camel's back was when the checkout girl looked at us and asked, What are y'all buying all these lemons for anyways? To which Joseph replied, We don't know either, but our grandma is crazy. Sorry. And Nona just straight up lost it. Her face is red, and we're all annoyed, and Joseph just questioned the might of our yellow god to this peon who dare refuse to yield us the sour bounty. I've never actually heard Nona yell at us, besides this one time. And did she ever yell? She snatched the bag from Joseph's hands, yelled at him that he was absolutely no help and to get his mother from the car, and that she never wanted to go shopping with him again. Which I'm sure to Joseph seemed to be more of a relief than a punishment, but whatever. We did eventually get those lemons in her home, which, oh yeah, was three flights up a brownstone built in like the 1850s or something. So a pretty horrible trip for me, now that Joseph had secured his place in the damn car. Joseph is actually one of the centers to another strange thing my family used to believe. Or at least my aunt seemed to believe. See, Joseph as a kid was hyperactive. Like, super speed hyperactive. And this eventually led to him getting extra help in school, and medicine, and all kinds of other things. But besides this, you know, normal run-of-the-mill sort of help, my aunt found online or in a book or something that it may have been his diet causing these insane bursts of energy. So she put him on a very restricted all-natural diet, with no artificial flavors, colors, sugars, or anything. This meant when we went out to eat, Joseph got adult food like steaks or salads. His soda was watered down to half when he was allowed it on special occasions, and he ate candy and treats from the health food and organic sections, which 20 years ago meant he was eating cardboard shaped like a very sad cookie. This also meant that when he did accidentally, or not so accidentally since his childhood restrictions basically made him into a high fructose corn syrup seeking missile, ingest anything more sugary than an oat grain, he went absolutely nuts. It was awesome. When we were kids, we used to go to our Uncle Martin's summer home in a community in the Poconos, where there were pools and parks and stuff. 
and one time we were left alone with one of my cousins, who I am not going to mention by name because I still don't think Aunt Janice knows about this story, or at least doesn't know the reason for this story. Anyways, me and Joseph were playing by the monkey bars, and of course there were other kids there, including one little kid who was a total jerk. Pushing other kids around, hogging the jungle gym, that kind of stuff. Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon. So we're playing around this kid, basically, and it's getting pretty annoying. So we decide we'll head back to the pool towards one of our cousins, who offers to buy us a treat at the kiosk thing they had there. And we're 12, so we wholeheartedly agree to the treat suggestion. But Joseph's restrictions make things kind of difficult. So my cousin has to ask him what he's allowed to have. And Joseph, not wanting to test his luck with something like a Spider-Man-shaped bar or a thing of Skittles, decides he'll maybe try to get his hands on a Dove chocolate-covered vanilla bar. Seems innocuous enough, right? I mean, it's vanilla and chocolate. He's allowed to have bars like that. So it should be okay. But it wasn't okay. Joseph ate the whole thing in like 10 seconds, and within minutes was flying through the jungle gym, pushing that kid around and calling him names, and just being a tiny vigilante. My cousin's still by the pool, and we're playing on the jungle gym now, and specifically on a section that was connected to the rest of the jungle gym by monkey bars. And Joseph decides this other kid is just not going to get past. Joseph's going to plant himself on the monkey bars and hold on for as long as he can. So this other kid, who had previously been kicking us off the monkey bars, couldn't get by. Joseph eventually ends up making this kid cry, and his mom comes over to try to reason with Joseph, who again is now acting like a madman who just took too much PCP due to the sugary shock his system is currently undergoing. I can't remember exactly what she said to him, but I can distinctly remember what Joseph said. He told this lady, and I quote, Shut up, you bitch! Which, as you can imagine, did not go over well with his 40-year-old mother. And now there's a commotion, so my cousin comes back, sees what's going on, apologizes profusely, and gives her my Aunt Janice's phone number at the house, and drags us back to meet our fates. Joseph was punished pretty good. If I can remember right, I think his Game Boy was taken away for the rest of the trip, and he wasn't allowed to have any more sweets the whole time. Which is pretty serious stuff when you're like 11 years old, and Pokemon just came out. My mom is also pretty good for weird ideas and stories, and a lot of my childhood friends were pretty much my mom's friends' kids, who we hung out with when our moms would read each other's tarot cards or do their astrology charts. When I say that my mom is into astrology, I mean she's like super into astrology. 
She has this website that she goes to that gives her all this insanely specific information. Like what moon was rising when you were born, what sort of jobs you would be good for, who you'll get along with and who you won't. Much more detailed than the stuff you get in the Sunday paper. When Katie and I hit the one-year mark with dating, my mom's first reaction was to ask her what time and date exactly she was born. While my mom knows all of Katie's stars, if we'll be compatible, what her favorite sort of bread should be based on the positioning of Uranus with my Pluto, Katie's parents couldn't remember if she was born at night or not. Katie's family is sort of the stoic, scientific yin to my family's super emotional, Dr. Oz is clearly right about everything, don't you know he's a doctor? Ways. So my mom is pretty interesting. When I was a kid, our house was full of books on science, witches, cults, psychology, religion, and of course, astrology. My mom was really great growing up about buying me books and reading to me too. So despite her less than scientific beliefs at times, she is easily the person most responsible for me getting into science. But she's also easily one of the biggest influences in my interest in pseudoscience and weird stuff too. She likes to tell me that as a kid, she didn't want to read my stars for fear of shaping my personality or how she raised me based on what she expected. And only did my full star chart at the age of 10 when I guess my personality was already baked in. Interestingly as well, she told me around that time that I had the same triangle of power stars thing that Hitler and Mussolini had. So, you know, a really solidly positive thing to tell a 10-year-old kid. She also says that this whole podcasting thing is preordained, since my stars, I guess, tell me that I should be really good at this whole public speaking thing. Or at least being in front of people. Or maybe not being in front of people, because, you know, the stars are kind of wonky that way. And since they are so wide open to interpretation, they can really mean anything you want them to. Needless to say, I am unconvinced by my mom's continued attempts to convert me to her astrological ways. That isn't to say that my mom isn't also involved in the world of science. She practically won me a science fair when I was a kid by building my team a model brain from socks, plastic wrap, and tinfoil. Something that I'm sure she has kept stuffed away someplace in the depths of our basement. She also basically taught herself computer programming when she was in her mid-twenties in order to get a job. And when I was a kid, taught me how to use DOS and build websites and basic programming and all kinds of cool stuff. My mom is constantly calling me with weird science things that she's read online. Or with weird stuff she thinks could be good on this show. Or with stuff that she can't explain that occurs in her own house. And one of the most troubling of these happened my first year of graduate school. Every year, our university has a poster session where you can show off your work. And since it was my first year, my mom and my Uncle Martin came up to see what I'd been working on. So my mom comes up, and she goes off to look at the posters. And I'm trying to find her since it's getting sort of late into the event. And finally I see her walking over with a look of triumph on her face. She tells me that she just spoke to a professor in biology, who was working on regenerative tissues through the study of other animals or plants that can regenerate spontaneously, such as salamanders. She's just told him about her Franken-Persimmon. For those that don't know, a persimmon is a super delicious fruit, usually ripe around the fall or winter. The species that are most popular with our family needs to be ripened until they're mushy and almost gross looking before they're ready to eat. 
since the chemicals inside can make your mouth numb if eaten before this point. And seriously, persimmons this way are better than candy. Anyways, my mom had a few months before accidentally left a persimmon to ripen a little too long, to the point where it was getting brown, but it didn't mold or anything. Intrigued by this weirdness, she decided to let it go for as long as it would. She kept this persimmon for weeks, until finally something happened and it got a small cut on its surface. Thinking surely this time it would mold, she kept it, only to wake up the next morning to what my mom continues to believe is a scientific breakthrough. The persimmon had seemingly healed its own skin. She immediately called me to tell me of her breakthrough, which as you can imagine was both hilarious and a little strange. Why did my mother keep a persimmon for this long? Why did she decide to keep it after it had been accidentally broken open? In this sort of situation, does one contact a priest or a doctor? And of course, she took pictures on her phone and found this guy doing research, of course, and proceeded to give him all of the details of my lab and my name and the program I'm studying and how if he wanted to get in contact to discuss this fruity and delicious breakthrough, he just had to go through me. I have, thankfully, mercifully never seen this professor in the hallway of my university. Although I'm sure if he did, he would probably steer clear, just in case I'm toting around months-old produce in my backpack. That's the end of this episode. I hope everyone had a great holiday, and I hope some of my family stories about weirdness will bring you joy in the new year. Coming up on this year of episodes, I have numerology, necromancy, evolution and intelligent design, orbs, squatchiness or the act of being squatchy, space travel, and more planned. If you have a topic you would like to hear me discuss, please send me an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. Message me on Podbean, Facebook, or Twitter. My logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen, and thank you again so much for listening to my podcast. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes.